Welcome to Fast Forward, presented by Commotion. I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, Director of Strategy for Commotion, and welcome to a very special episode. Rather than invite Jonah Bliss out to crack jokes about SPACs and Tesla, along with the guest, this week we're proud to present a session that I hosted at Motivate SoCal, our initial investor-themed event. Uh, in this panel, I was joined by Assembly Ventures' Jessica Robinson and .LA Sam Adams to discuss the post-pandemic landscape, uh, a world of Bitcoin, NFTs, SPACs, and of course, uh, the Biden stimulus plans, and really what it all means uh, for mobility investment going forward. So with that, I will invite them out virtually from that session to talk about what they see on the landscape ahead. We'll be back next week with more of the usual assortment of jokes and news items when Jonah Bliss returns. As always, take care. Hello, everyone. I'm Greg Lindsay, Director of Strategy here for Commotion. I'll be your moderator for our first session. So we get Sam and Jessica to come out on the virtual stage. And we'll get started here and discussing the funny landscape. Sam, welcome back. It's been a, it's been an age. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Jessica yeah, Robinson joining us as uh, soon to be the first uh, the first two time guest here on the Fast Forward Podcast because that's how much we want to listen to Jessica. Um, let's dive in. It's we have we have about thirty minutes here to chat, um, and let's get started in discussing the way we fund <laughs> mobility startups now. Basically, um, I guess I'll throw it over to Jessica first because we already heard a little from Sam. But but Jessica, I, I, I want to call on you particularly because you are not coming from SoCal. You're coming from Detroit. Uh, where particularly uh, before you joined Assembly Ventures in your last incarnation, you were sort of uh, helping basically create the sort of new mobility ecosystem in Southeast Detroit. And this is a great setup for this in terms of the geographic nature of VC funding for mobility. Um, Obviously, this is themed around Southern California, but there is this sort of trope, right, that the next great wave of companies will be founded on the internet or in the cloud, that we are, of course, going to have an all-remote future. And I guess as a way of starting, let's talk a bit about how clusters will emerge in this and whether, you know, Detroit and Southern California can both be winners. I guess they were in the last wave of mobility. Um, but what, what are you seeing there, Jessica, in terms of sort of how that venture ecosystem and you know pipeline of new companies has continued to evolve dur- through the pandemic and what you expect to see on the other side? Absolutely. Thanks, Greg. Really glad to be here again with you all today. And thanks to my friends in Southern California for sending some sunshine to us here in the Midwest today. Um, I think you're spot on, Greg, in the sense that uh, startups of the future will, of course, leverage um, a whole host of technologies which can scale everywhere. But at Assembly, we believe actually pretty firmly that while innovation can be global, um, the implementation of mobility technology and innovation does absolutely have to take the local environment and ecosystem into account. And I think one of the things that's interesting to me about Southern California, where I've had a chance to do business, both for my time at Techstars, where I worked on the Qualcomm Robotics Accelerator in San Diego, but also with a great team member um, of mine at Ford, uh, who is based in LA, um, there are certain assets that um, Southern California has that um, I would say are enviable uh, to other regions. Um, And I think that's a good place to start. So John mentioned in his opening remarks for the session today, Lacey, a great incubator that links the uh, connection between 
clean tech and mobility. Um, but I think about other things as well, the proximity to the Mexican border. When you think about potential reshoring or nearshoring of manufacturing, that's a huge asset for entrepreneurs that want to work in the, the hard tech space. Um, and then there's maybe other lesser known things too, like the U.S. Air Force actually has an Air Force base in the city of Los Angeles. Right now it's focused on missile command, but it's actually going to flip over and be the center of space command. Uh, when you think about satellite technology in the future. And that's something, frankly, no other community has. So I think those assets are important because they're obviously um, resources to entrepreneurs as they think about uh, finding paths to commercialization. But I think those specialties also throw off certain types of entrepreneurs. And I would argue in Southern California, you see that in clean tech, but also things like aerospace. And maybe that's a special flavor of mobility in this particular region. Interesting. Well, I'll follow up to that one. Since you've been so complimentary to Southern California, Jessica, what, what would you rank Detroit and Southeast Michigan's own strengths that way? I mean, obviously you have the universities, which I think is a key piece of any sort of venture ecosystem. One of the things that Miami is lacking in a way, uh, you know, um, speaking of Commotion Miami and our partners there, but that's been sort of identified as a, a missing piece they need to solve if they want to be a tech haven. Um, how would you briefly make the case for, South, for, for Southeast Michigan as, a, as another hub of, a, of, of venture? Absolutely. Well, I'm definitely biased on this one too. I will say Detroit is number one, no matter what. Um, but we actually share some things in common, right? We're cities on a border here in Detroit. It's the proximity to uh, Windsor and Ontario, which is of course a great jumping off point into the Canadian market. And of course, so much trade goes across our border here. Tremendous universities, Greg, you're absolutely spot on um, to reference that. Um, but I would say what we have that maybe others don't is automotive. And of course, that comes with leg legacy and the heritage of manufacturing. But I think so many companies now, whether it's their electrification or a shift to mobility services, the companies that are here in Michigan um, are really taking a look at what that means for the future of their businesses. Um, I guess I should also say though, because assembly is based in Detroit, and Berlin. We're actually pretty bullish on the transatlantic links as well when you connect multiple legacy automotive centers together. Great. Thanks, Jessica. All right, Sam, quickly, the case for Southern California, and I particularly, I think, post-pandemic, what you think the biggest assets are for continuing that? I mean, obviously, you know, huge, rich history of automotive design and manufacturing there as well. Um, but I'm curious, what, what would you identify as the critical pieces besides Lacey, which Jessica's already been kind enough to call out? Yeah, exactly. No, Jessica did a did a great job of uh, running down, you know, a few of the the the, the um, most crucial elements to it. I mean, I think that um, I I think that the the manufacturing and the the def like defense aerospace legacy of it um, has is is really an underrated part of kind of the history of the LA tech and startup ecosystem. Um, I'll give you an example. Actually, my uh, I, I was born and raised in Santa Monica, and the house that that uh, I grew up in and my parents still live in was built in the 1930s for Douglas Aircraft workers building planes in advance of, of World War II. Um, and now that Santa Monica Airport, where they were building it at, you know, hosts Snapchat. But um, between that and you know JPL, um, and then that ties into the education, uh, you know, infrastructure of exactly like we were saying. Uh, of you know Caltech, USC, UCLA, and then beyond that, you know the CSUN, um, CSULA. Uh, there's a, a ton of really world class um, uh, universities, um, and 
also both the the uh, the means and the motive for innovation in technology. Um, a, a, a really hot uh, kind of micro mobility startup these days is um, Irby. If the audience has heard of it, um, when I was at USC, I, I was doing my graduate work there. Actually, it was uh, uh, I believe co-founded by. Um, a USC professor there and actually incubated and like the first test market was for USC students who were, you know, trying to figure out how to get out, get around campus. I think that um, also just the, the, the struggles of um, getting around LA, I think really do incentivize uh, innovation in terms of, you know, figuring out how to engineer situations in which you're not, you know, in a car for three hours a day. And those who have had a long, uh, car commute here, um, you know, can speak well to that. And so I think that, that because of, because of all of that, and as well as the fact that it's the perfect environment for, um, you know, testing out new, um, uh, new models. And I, I think that, you know, bird being from Santa Monica is, uh, no accident or, or, or no coincidence. Um, you know, it's, sunny, you know, 300 days a year. Um, and you know, you, you, there is appetite for, um, uh, methods that don't necessarily involve just, you know, sitting in a gas powered car, um, on the 405. That's what, yeah. When you paint it that way, yes, that is definitely not the future of mobility if we can help it. Um, all right. Well, now that we've set the sort of scene literally and figuratively here in terms of geographic locale and that importance, let's get down to the money. Um, Jessica, you have a fund. So obviously we'll get into brass tacks there. I'm curious, again, on the on the other side of the pandemic, how, how what, basically how your investing strategy has changed, if at all, what areas you're looking at. And I'm curious, what does it mean to be a VC at this point in the mobility game uh, after, as John alluded to in his opening remarks here, um, you know, the, the trillions of cash sloshing through the system here. First, of course, the Federal Reserve, the PPE that went to startups, and now we're looking at a you know $2 trillion uh, potential stimulus package from President Biden as well. So um, how does it affect you as a relatively early stage investor when there's just so much cash out there? Yeah, there is a lot of cash. And, you know, certainly in that jobs plan, um, there's a lot of focus on uh, various forms of mobility and infrastructure. I think that's a really important foundation and, and certainly glad to talk more about that, Greg. I think coming out of the pandemic thematically, there's a, a couple things that have been really refined for us. Um, I think about, for instance, on the consumer side, uh, the role of public transit moving forward. Obviously, um, local governments are, are even more pressed to figure out how to fund that. I think in the U.S. that will push toward more, um, you know, PPP, uh, public-private partnership um, models, or frankly, even just more of a handshake and an alliance than maybe some of the combative um, relationships that we've seen before. I think the startups are also much more aware of the need to um, play nice and think about regulation from the very beginning versus, you know, just kind of coming into a market. Um, I think micromobility, you know, is here to stay, um, particularly as consumers look for different forms of, and modes of flexibility. But if you think about um, some of the other areas that um, are kind of burst onto the scene, whether it's grocery delivery and things like that, um, there's a whole new category of consumers that are using those services that they wouldn't have tried them otherwise. And the business models in some cases are, are challenged and need to get to scale. Um, but there, again, behavior has changed coming out of the pandemic. I think for us more broadly, um, again, the alignment and focus on electrification as a way to create jobs and, and stimulate 
growth is really important, um, as well as this focus on uh, new forms of manufacturing and getting to market more quickly. I think that's really important to us. Um, I would love to see from the federal government, if anyone's listening, um, a a focus on startups here, though. Um, There's a statistic that I love, which talks about the role of startups in the economy. They're only about 15% of the companies across the country. They count for about half of all jobs. And so when you think about linking jobs and mobility and economic development and resiliency together, um, let's remember startups as part of the story too. Thank you, Jessica. I want to come back to, you know, new, new sectors, new services and business models and mm-hmm. particularly PPEs. We'll come back to that in a moment. But first, Sam, since you can speak more broadly here, I want to hear you. I, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on some of the new models you've emerged and sort of how they've been embraced by Southern California companies. SPACs jump out as one. I mean, there's been some very high profile SPACs in SoCal. Um, you know, for a while there it was all SPACs, 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 SPACs. And of course, as John alluded to as well, there's crypto and other forms there too. So I'm curious how you've seen the venture landscape change. I mean, we've seen in recent years, the rise of crowdfunding models, Republic and various platforms as well well for financing. So yeah, how, how are you seeing the whole sort of SoCal ecosystem evolving when it comes to, yeah, creating this pipeline of, of early to late stage startups and then, you know, quasi exits via SPAC or other means? Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the emergence of SPACs um, as uh, a really dominant, uh, you know, liquidity uh, uh, mechanism over the past you know, say a year or so, um, has, has really been truly amazing. And, uh, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back, but actually dot LA last Monday broke the, broke the news that bird was planning to go public by us back. Um, and yeah, I think that it's, you know, even though the, the market is, you know, uh, not quite as frothy as it was maybe a couple of months ago. Um, and you know, you're seeing kind of the, the deluge of, uh, new SPACs filing turn into, you know, more of a streamer trickle. Um, I do think that that is, you know, going to be, uh, a favorable way for, uh, you know, some of these late stage, you know, very capital intensive, uh, uh, startups to provide liquidity, liquidity for their investors, as well as, you know, continue to finance operations, um, as well as, uh, maybe try to be able to drift off of the Tesla effect and capture the kind of you know multiples that uh, that that specific company has been able to command in the marketplace. Um, you know how much of that is uh, sui generis to Elon Musk? And, you know uh, uh, who knows? But um, I, I I think that that will I think that that is a model that's that's here to stay at least for the short term in terms of um, you know pretty late stage capital intensive startups that are looking to um, be able to to reach some liquidity. Um, In terms of crowdfunding, I think that that's a very interesting model that's probably more suited to, um, you know, I think like micro mobility, especially where there's like um, a discrete product that, um, you know, is not necessarily... uh, I, I don't know how many people would be comfortable, um, you know, fully crowdfunding, uh, you know, a, a pickup truck or something in the, you know, in the case of, uh, uh, a, you know, canoe or something, but, uh, you, you know, maybe if it's, a yeah, thousand dollar, um, you know, scooter, uh, in, you know, the, the case, there's been a couple of those, um, you, you know, I mentioned Irby earlier, like something like that. Um, I could see that as a way to get from prototype to, you know, some kind of scale economy. Sure. Great. And Jessica, I know you're thinking about SPACs too. 
Yeah, we definitely are. Um, You know, SPACs are certainly one form of liquidity for, you know, startups. I mean, that's been proven, you know, potentially even those we'd invest in. I think they have proven their function in terms of companies that are truly capital intensive in getting to scale. Certainly, we've seen that with a number of electric vehicle makers, again, in clean tech, there's a a number of good examples here. Um, As someone who's been part of a company that went public, I can tell you, though, that is is a long and arduous journey. Once you are traded, uh, there's a lot of scrutiny on your business model and your margins. And I do think that um, some of the enthusiasm that we saw February was really the peak for SPACs. um, that will cool off as uh, you know folks start to reconcile uh, valuations with revenue. Um, but I think again, as a, a tool for the long run, they're here to stay. Um, but one of the interesting things about SPACs that I actually just read this morning is um, a link between um, offering of the SPAC itself before they've named the company they want to acquire and statements around ESG goals in terms of environmental, sustainable, and, and kind of governance or social. Um, efforts. And this this company looked at the top 500 SPACs and about a third of them listed some sort of intent, if you will, to focus on ESG. Um, But when they dug into the language, only about 10, 8% uh, of those uh, listings actually had strong language that indicated they really were going to make this a, a central theme of the company that they looked at. Um, so there's maybe a little bit of greenwashing going on uh, in the SPAC market right now. But what's interesting is of the companies that um, had that strong intent when they went public, they saw an 18% jump in their stock price on IPO day versus those that had no ESG comment or kind of wishy-washy language. They only got about a three and a half percent bump. So I think it shows pretty clearly that the public markets are very eager to see companies that will stand behind that as an investing goal when they look for the company that they'll go after via SPAC. No, absolutely. I mean, it's becoming very clear that climate risk exposure in portfolios are becoming more and more important and uh, putting that there. So no, I totally agree. Um, I just want to quickly add for for audience members here, uh, by all means, throw some questions into the chat. I don't mean to monopolize the questions as your moderator. So I will happily uh, lean on smarter people than I to ask questions to our great panelists. Um, But Jessica, uh, continuing in this vein, I want to come back to what you were saying earlier about PPPs and other sort of models. Um, Yeah, I mean, how will the next wave of investment and startups look like compared to the last one? I mean, the last Last wave, of course, we'll say Uber was emblematic of it, right? Disruptor, regulatory arbitrage, vast piles of venture capital set on fire to basically achieve a monopoly that is still proving elusive. Um, do you? Yeah, you, you obviously alluded there might be something else, more partnerships with cities and more structured deals. And I'm curious if there's any examples you would point to in your portfolio or elsewhere about what that new emblematic startup might look like. Yeah, no, great question, Greg. I think there's a couple of things that come to mind here. One is again, the the savviness, if you will, of the startups themselves to recognize that um, that partnership path is a viable one. Um, You know, maybe we'll continue to see companies that just kind of throw caution to the wind and and deal with regulation later. But I think in mobility, we're past that. Um, For a venture-backed startup, though, you're always looking for that key moment of scale and inflection. And I think that's where this kind of um, uh, paradox or the consideration between hyperscale and localization really starts to play out. So there has to be some model that is locally relevant, um, but again, can scale in a broad way. Um, I think, you know, there's, again, multiple companies that uh, on a consumer um, side bear that out. Um, 
But, you know, I think we're also watching, again, kind of back and forth between Europe and the U.S. here in the sense that maybe the antagonism we saw in the U.S., the companies as they go to market, um, they're not seeing it in the same way in Europe because they're just kind of born from a different DNA um, from the beginning. Thank you, Jessica. And Sam, I guess same question for you then. I mean, are there any particular interesting examples you would point to in the SoCal scene that you think are representative of the sort of next wave or next crop? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I remember, uh, I think it was back in December, um, the mayor's office in, uh, announced uh, uh, kind of a, a PPP uh, program for, um, uh, I think it was called the Urban Air Mobility uh, one. And so it's focused on, and I believe you have uh, uh, someone from the Urban Movement Labs um, coming in. So they're a lot closer to that. So I don't want to step on that or, or uh, miss uh, misconstrue what it is. Um, but I think that that is, you know, the, the, the city's kind of investment specifically in those kind of, um, you know, aerial, whether it's drones or testing towards, you know, the concept of an air taxi, right? Like circling back to what I was saying at the very beginning of like, you know, the, the, I would say the, you, you know, one of the, one of the three biggest problems in LA as a city is, you know, gridlock and traffic. And so, um, you know, if you can, figure that out by adding a Z, Z axis to the city, that would be amazing. And so um, I think that, that being able to, um, you know, empower, uh, empower startups that are, that are trying to, you know, work on that problem um, to be able to, you know, test it out in a semi real, um, uh, real world scenario, um, I think is, you know, really going to be um, an exciting path forward. And so instead of, so instead of it being, you know, the, the startups just kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, ask for forgiveness, not for permission, sort of the Uber model that you were talking about earlier. Um, I, I think that, you know, in a lot of these cities, there, the, 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 the government infrastructure is, you know, really seeing this as a path forward to innovation on, uh, solving some of these really crucial problems. Um, you know, similarly, I know there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of these kind of, uh, uh, projects that, you know, the MTA and, and Metro are working on um, in conjunction with a lot of, you know, private startups um, as we build towards the 2028 Olympics. Um, and I think that that's going to, you know, start bearing uh, fruit in really interesting ways um, for the city in the next couple of years. Thank you, Sam. All right. Let's, uh, let's widen the aperture a bit here. Uh, and we got a great question from the audience here that'll help prime for this from Zvi. Uh, the allocation of space will be critical for future transportation technologies to create network effects. Do either of you have any thoughts about the role of parking in our mobility ecosystem? I would take that and I would broaden it because obviously, and this is interesting, of course, Detroit and Southern California, of course, you know, the birthplaces of the automobile and automobile driven sprawl, which built more value in terms of real estate than any mobility industry has ever captured. So yeah, what is, you know, park of course, uh, an interesting externality that comes with mobility that creates value, but also Jessica you alluded to the delivery business models that have emerged during the pandemic, which has led to ghost kitchens and those fortunes. What are the, what are the kinds of services and second order effects do you think are going to be some of the biggest opportunities here in the sort of new mobility paradigms that, that are emerging post pandemic and, and might emerge in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, that question of allocation of space is an interesting one because, in, you know, what else have we learned post-pandemic? Think about the number of bicycles that were sold, right? And that's really um, put um, some market demand in, in certain cities for additional infrastructure that didn't exist before. Um, I think, you know, there's actually a company in, in Southern California, Perch Mobility, they're supporting um, charging kind of 
in city for micro mobility versus gathering a bunch of vehicles and taking them out to the suburbs and charging coming back. Um, but I think there's no no denying, maybe just specifically in the parking piece first, um, that that we may have finally hit that moment where curb parking in particular, um, people have seen that there's uh, other and higher uses of that space, whether it's curbs, curbside dining, pickup delivery. Um, and you know, certainly there's a number of startups that are looking at uh, building technology to help cities administer that space. But I think it goes more broadly, which is this, this revisiting of both lanes and sidewalks. Um, I think there's open questions, for instance, about whether delivery robots should be on a sidewalk or in a bike lane. Um, certainly advocates on both sides have a strong point of view. Um, but you know, I think that's where local comes back in. There are certain cities that have a sidewalk infrastructure that would support something like that and others that, that don't. Um, but from, again, a policy perspective, we have to remember that there are pedestrians and, and folks with disabilities that might um, be endangered by sharing uh, a sidewalk with some of those robots. So that's kind of one form of space. Um, Sam, you touched on urban air mobility, right? There's a whole other uh, way to think about space that's not really carved up for any use yet. Um, and I think that's really going to play out in interesting ways. But I think um, for land-based mobility, one of the biggest questions in my mind is where charging will take place for electric vehicles. Um, certainly to date, we've seen a huge focus on building out a network focused on supporting charging at home if you have a garage, but for multifamily um, or workplace environments, that's really challenging um, for people to begin to purchase or use EVs. And so what does it look like from maybe a depot perspective um, and then extend that out to delivery um, and all of those um, delivery, not just the robots, but the, the vans that will be bringing all of our um, near on-demand packages to our homes. Um, how far out into the suburbs do they drive to recharge? Um, and of course there's knock on grid effects to that as well. So just a couple of thoughts on that one. Great question. Thank you, Jessica. Your thoughts, Sam, as well, because I would say L.A., you know, yeah. yeah, well, I just want to nod here. In 2018 at Commotion L.A., we had Woods Bag at the architecture firm presented some of their ideas that we stripped out all that parking and started building new forms of real estate housing. Yeah. Chris Hawthorne, I know, is doing competitions on changing gas stations into new community hubs. But anyway, yeah. please, what are your well, thoughts? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I'm I'm a big advocate of um, density, um, in especially in L.A., um, density attached to transit. Um, I, I think that that's, that's, um, you know, a, a big part of the solution and, and one of the biggest inhibitors to, uh, development and, and the creation of multifamily homes and, and, uh, 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 just, you know, building density in general to alleviate home prices, um, is the parking, uh, spot requirement, right? Like that, that is the single biggest inhibitor, um, as far as I know about being able to, um, to build more housing. And so, you know, if you can uh, alleviate that, you know, by some combination of lower dependence on cars through, you know, transit and last mile solutions, things like that. Um, but also, I mean, I think that, that um, you know, down the road, and, and I know that people have been saying this for several years and will probably be saying it for several more years, but eventually, you know, autonomous vehicles are going to get to the point where it really does you know, uh, render parking, you know, in its current form obsolete, whether that's through, you know, whatever the mobility as a service concept of like, okay, you're not actually going to own a car. You're just going to, you know, have an autonomous, whatever Uber Lyft take you wherever. Um, or it's okay. I'm going to drive or be driven to my place 
and then tell my car to go find a parking space. And then it just autonomously goes. And maybe it's one of those like, um, you know, the Carvana vending machine sort of, uh, uh, you know, multi-level things. And, and all of a sudden you can start doing really interesting things with um, uh, density of parking and, and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I know that, that that part of it is is probably several years away, but I think that, you know, once we can solve the problem of um, the, you know, a car, a car that's not in use has to be in a very high value, either residential or um, commercial area. Uh, that is going to unlock a, a huge amount of, of uh, value and, and utility in the world. Thank you. All right, four minutes left. So we're going to lightning round for the two of you now. Jessica, you're up first. Um, the question I want to ask you first is what what form of uh, financial financialization and funding do you think will emerge over the next five to 10 years that is under the radar now or are you a believer in? Uh, do you think crypto will continue to enter the mainstream? Will we have NFTs for forms of mobility? Could we have a distributed autonomous organization that runs a car sharing service, for example? I mean, you were part of Zipcar at one point. Uh, could we imagine sort of distributed versions of this one? Is there anything in particular that you are a believer in or you're keeping your eye on with at least some uh, a, an eye of wariness uh, because it might get big? Uh, very good question. Um, definitely curious about crypto and what that means, um, just in the general marketplace as a, a you know a payment and form of transaction. You know, there's so much focus, for instance, on car as a payment method today, and and the the big um, clearinghouses want to make sure that they're a part of that story. What if it goes to distributed? Um, and who wins in that scenario. So I, I think you're right to, to pull out that one. The other kind of uh, nuance that I think we'll see in the years ahead is a return in mobility to uh, fleet ownership by the companies themselves. Um, certainly it's something we had at Zipcar, then we had this kind of Uber Lyft moment where everything is kind of shifted back to the, the drivers. When you see these fleets in this consolidation, I actually wonder well, the, whether there will be new forms of asset-backed securitization um, as a financial tool in the marketplace. Um, and I think there'll be new forms of insurance as well uh, for people as we start to procure mobility services in different ways. Great answer, Jessica. I would say, I remember uh, my friend Anthony Townsend we've had on the podcast as, as wrote about in his ghost road book, imagining the financialization of autonomy and exactly that matter. Um, Sam, anything particularly exotic that you're paying attention to when it comes to new novel instruments? Are, are you a crypto believer? Um, well, I, I mean, actually, um, to, to the degree that uh, I woke up this morning and bought more crypto rather than sold off everything I had when everything was down 30%, I, 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 I would characterize myself historically as a, as a bear on that, but uh, I guess that's, that's a useful data point. I, and, and I think that especially in this space, um, there are there are a lot of really interesting uh, applications of, you know, you hear a lot about like smart contracts and things like that, and the way that, you know... Um, the, there, there could be a lot of ways to synthesize kind of um, uh, value transactions between, you know, um, whether it's renting a car or getting an Uber or, you know, um, uh, the, you, you know, benefits of, um, I think that there's a lot of like really interesting microeconomic uh, uh, experiments to be had. Like when I was living in New York, um, I always, you know, you have all of the city bikes at the one at the bottom of the hill and none of them at the top of the hill. So maybe there's something to be done about like, you know, you, you get some kind of crypto based, uh, you know, benefit to bring equilibrium to a system. Um, I actually do think that, uh, you know, as much of a, as a direct currency, I think that there's a lot of really interesting smart contract, like crypto, um, 
solutions to a lot of these these mobility things that we're talking about. I'm I'm not smart enough to know exactly what they are, um, but I, I I think that there's a lot of really cool opportunity. All right. Well, I think we're out of time, but I'm glad we got one actual piece of investing advice. Sam Sam Adams buying the dip. So you heard it here first here when it comes to our crypto strategy, but but I'll have to leave it there. Uh, although I do love the notion of the rebalancer DAO that, you know, getting getting paid a tiny, tiny fraction there to, uh, to move your bike back up the hill. Um, well, on that note, thank you so much, Sam. Thank you so much, Jessica. This has been a fascinating conversation to say the least. It's been my pleasure to moderate you.